Let's turn in God's word to the second book of Samuel in the Old Testament. Second book of Samuel. Going to read from chapter 11. And the first five verses, a short reading. The second book of Samuel is very much dominated by the narrative of the life of David, the king of Israel. And this section of 2 Samuel is very, very well known indeed. And um, it comes at a point when David's own personal rule and character have never been higher or, or more auspicious and praiseworthy. And it's at that point when David is at the very peak of his power and his influence and everything else that we read these words. Second book of Samuel, chapter 11, and the first five verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And there we leave it for this evening. Now, what I want to do for a number of Sunday evenings, before and during and maybe indeed after the summer holidays, because we don't know quite what's going to happen over these weeks in terms of comings and goings and numbers, let's have at least this as a constant I want to work our way through these two chapters, 11 and 12, of the second book of Samuel, and then to go on to the psalm that is very much associated with this passage, and that is Psalm 51, which David wrote after all these things had happened. Now, why do I want to look at this passage? Why do I then want to look at Psalm 51? Well, I'll tell you. We have all heard a great deal probably more than enough, and even in a sense from me tonight in in our prayers, of people saying that we are living in strange times, right? We are living in strange times. And perhaps because we are living in such strange times, there might be a danger to think that we can overlook common problems, common issues, which are there with us all the time. We might think that in a time like this, we need a very specific and different 
kind of message, which is completely attuned to the particular needs of a pandemic period and leave other things that we would otherwise talk about in church. Maybe we should leave off completely preaching about God and about human beings and about sin and about Jesus Christ and about salvation and about forgiveness and focus instead on COVID-specific topics. I'm not sure that you want to hear much about COVID-specific topics when you come here on a Sunday morning or evening. I'm sick and tired of them. I'm sure most of you are as well. But here is another reason why we must not just do that. We must not become distracted and stop talking about those themes which are absolutely central to the Christian life, to the Christian faith. Let me give you an example which tells us why it's perhaps vital, particularly now, that we look at a passage like this. We were thinking this morning, you may remember if you were here, about the city of Athens. And I read last week how in the year 430 BC, a very, very long time ago, a plague, an epidemic, not a pandemic, but an epidemic, a plague struck Athens. And the Greek historian Thucydides, he described how disease pushed the destabilized society into lawlessness. People, not knowing where to turn, became reckless of all law, human and divine. That plague in that city pushed people over the edge into lawlessness. In more recent history, in the year 1831, there were cholera outbreaks in St. Petersburg, in Russia. And quarantines were imposed by the Tsar Nicholas I. And after they were imposed, riots broke out. Rioters began to attack doctors. Now that's strange, isn't it? Why would rioters attack doctors? Well, that's what happened in St. Petersburg nearly 200 years ago. Shops, homes, businesses were looted and burned down in Donetsk, in the Ukraine. And this is my point. When there are big changes, when there are significant shifts in a society, it can very quickly happen that people lose moral and spiritual self-control. They can go places they wouldn't have gone during more ordinary times. And that is a real, real danger. And so tonight's sermon has this title. Be on your guard against temptation. And I want us to see three reasons tonight why we need to be on our guard. There are three things that temptation seizes. There are three things that temptation wants to grab hold of. And let's beware of all three of them. The first of them is this. Temptation seizes a blameless person. A blameless person. David the king is the dominant human character in this narrative and throughout this second book of Samuel. 
And what kind of man was David? What kind of character was David? Well, even if before it's introduced to us in the first book of Samuel, we're told this in chapter 13, verse 14, that David was a man after God's own heart. Remember, Saul the king had failed, had disobeyed the Lord, and Samuel said to Saul that the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and that man was to be David the son of Jesse. Now what does it mean, a man after God's own heart? Does it mean that David was, um, as it were, chasing after God's own heart, pursuing God's own heart? He was after God's own heart in that sense. It doesn't mean that. It means that David himself was patterned according to God's own heart. David's heart was a godly heart. David was like God in his heart, a godly man and a blameless man. And if you were to just look back at the previous two chapters in 2 Samuel, chapter 9 and chapter 10, you would see two examples of where David behaves in this blameless fashion. Chapter 9 begins with David asking a question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, my former sworn enemy, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And you have that narrative, you remember, of David tracking down Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and showing him royal kindness so that Mephibosheth, who is lame in both feet, a crippled young man, he eats at the king's table. And then you have in chapter 10, uh, you have David saying about the king of the Ammonites, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. And even though this son did not deal loyally towards David, as it turns out in chapter 10, the point we're making is this. David was loyal. David was honorable. David was a good, godly, upright, and blameless man. That's the David that we've seen in the Bible right up to the beginning of chapter 11. Now, there are certain men in the Bible who, we can say, are like that. They have a blameless character. What does that mean? It means that you cannot point the finger at these people and say, Aha! An obvious fault. An obvious sin. This person has a a clear flaw in their character and there it is. And there are a number of men who are like that. There is no obvious flaw to their character. You can think of Joseph. You can think of Samuel. We've mentioned Samuel. You can think of Nehemiah. And you can think of Daniel. And you cannot say of any of these four men, ah, there is an obvious, prominent sin. We're not saying that these men were sinless. Only one has ever been sinless. The Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be God, that his son is sinless. Because only a sinless saviour can save you and me from our sins. Isn't that right, friends? Only a sinless saviour. But praise God, there are plenty of blameless people in the Bible. And praise God, there are blameless people in God's church today as well.
You can't say that every believer in the Bible is blameless, can you? You can't say that Samson is blameless. You can't say that Solomon is blameless. You can't say that Simon Peter was blameless. But until this point, David has been blameless. We don't know everything about his life thus far, but the record is one of a man who is after God's own heart. But listen to this. From this point on, it changes. He loses his reputation of blamelessness. What we have in this chapter is the record of a sad, tragic decline into serious sin. Sin with devastating consequences. And let me make this point again. We all sin. If any of us here tonight says that I am not a sinner, then we lie. We deceive ourselves. And yet it's biblical to say this. Some sins have far more serious consequences than others. And these sins of David had massive, massive consequences. And friends, it's in order that you and I might not sin in that way that I am preaching from this passage here this evening. It is to warn all of us against this sin. Because temptation to sin can seize a blameless, a blameless person, a blameless man or woman or young person. There is no room for complacency in any of us in this place tonight. No room for complacency. This is put very concisely by the Apostle Paul. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 he says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You may think you're doing absolutely fine. You're never going to fall. You're never going to be tempted in this or that area. You think you are immune to certain temptations or sins. Well, if that's how you feel, you've probably never, ever been in greater danger. A couple of pastors were once waiting for an aeroplane in a departure lounge. And the younger pastor said to the older pastor, One thing I know for sure, I could never be unfaithful to my wife. The older pastor looked at him for a few seconds. And then the younger pastor blustered out and said, uh, you know, I've just said the most stupid thing of my entire life. Because, of course, we can all be tempted in all sorts of ways. Temptation may seize somebody for whom life seems all blue skies and sunshine and ease and tranquility and not a cloud on the horizon and then wham along comes a temptation that drags them down this is the second point you see temptation seizes opportunities temptation seizes opportunities and there are two particular circumstances that we need to notice here 
and they both became opportunities for David to be tempted to sin. And tempted he was, and sin he did. And what were they? Well, the first of them is the opportunity posed by success. When you are successful, or feeling successful, or think you're doing rather well, thank you, then you are particularly prone to be tempted to sin. And if you go back to the previous chapter, chapter 10, you can see that David and the army of Israel had been phenomenally successful. The details don't matter, but we can read the last two verses of chapter 10. We read there that there had been a great battle, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites any more. Now you just imagine if you were David at that point in your life, wouldn't you be saying, whoa, haven't I done well? I've got the world at my feet. I've conquered, I've subdued the Syrians and the Ammonites. I've been so phenomenally successful. Must have felt a bit like Napoleon with his Grande Armée on the way to Moscow in 1812. His million men who have been sweeping all before them. I am invincible. No one can defeat me. And of course Napoleon found out that it wasn't as simple as that when he got to Moscow. But don't we get a sense of that here with David? Where we see him in chapter 11 and verse 2. And he's walking on the roof of the king's house. Now you imagine, if you were a king or a queen, and you had just defeated two of your most dangerous enemies, and they were groveling at your feet, and you were walking on the very roof of your royal palace, wouldn't you feel just a teeny bit proud and pleased with yourself about how things were going? Well, I would. We all would, wouldn't we? And David certainly must have done. And that's the danger of success. Success breeds pride. And we should all know from Proverbs 16 and verse 18, one of the most famous verses about pride. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. When you or I are proud... Flushed with our own success, at our own achievements, we are in the greatest danger. They often say, don't they, in football, that if a team is 2-0 up, they are at the greatest risk then of conceding a goal, far more than if they are 2-0 down. And I'm sure that's right. The Greeks used to speak about hubris and nemesis. Hubris, that sense of arrogance and conceit and pride that I'm doing so well. And then Nemesis, the goddess of retribution who would punish the one filled with this hubris. Now we don't believe in Nemesis as a goddess, but the lesson is very clear, isn't it? Beware 
if you think you've done well, temptation to sin latches onto pride. But let me give you another opportunity that temptation latches onto. And I think that this is even more of a danger, especially at these times we are living in now. There's the opportunity posed by inactivity, or by laziness, by idleness. I've never been sure in the past whether preachers have made too much of this fact, uh, that David stays at home when the kings go out to battle and he remains at Jerusalem. But I think they're on to something. And indeed we do read, if you look in verse 1, that not only has Joab gone to war and his servants, but all Israel, they've all gone. And David is there alone, as it were, by himself in Jerusalem. But then we also read this in verse 2, that it was late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. Now, I don't know whether afternoon siestas were part of the culture in Israel 3,000 years ago, They may have been, but the picture we get is that David is just idling around, not up to much, not away on any kind of purposeful holiday, deliberate retreat or refreshment or sabbatical or anything like that. He's just taking it easy at home. He's putting his feet up on his couch. He's got nothing to do. And his inactivity is a great opportunity for temptation to sin. And I'm sure another saying is going through all your minds right now, a well-known English proverb that you may be thinking about in terms of what happens when you have idle hands. You've heard it before, haven't you? The devil finds work for idle hands to do. You've heard that, I'm sure. It's not actually found in the Bible. Sounds like it might be, but it isn't actually found in the Bible. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, Canterbury Tales fame, over 600 years ago, wrote these words, very similar words. He said, do some good deeds so that the devil, who is our enemy, won't find you unoccupied. And that's good. And there are some verses which speak about the danger of idleness. Proverbs 19, verse 15 says this. Slothfulness, laziness, casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. And Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. This roof is pretty firm. There's a fund, I understand, to be making sure that this roof and the ceiling can be properly repaired or replaced in however many years it might be. We don't have slothful deacons in Grove Chapel. Thank God for that. But all of us can at times be tempted to be idle and inactive. And Paul, you may know, warned the Thessalonians in his second letter to avoid people who are idle People who are not busy, but busy bodies. And if anyone is not willing to work, says Paul, neither will he eat. 
But let's apply this to ourselves. Let's be very honest with ourselves. We all know from experience, don't we, that idleness, inactivity, creates opportunities for temptation and sin. It always has done. When we have nothing to do, we start looking around, we start feeling restless, we start feeling a bit curious, ooh, I might try that. We start looking in places where we wouldn't look if we were productively and busily preoccupied. And this opportunity is amplified, isn't it? If we can reach out for a smartphone, a remote, if we're sitting all alone in our room in front of a laptop, in front of a TV, and we can flick through hundreds of channels or we can just click on that address and, uh, well, we've got nothing else to do, so that's interesting. hope nobody's going to come in now while I'm looking at this, I, though I shouldn't be doing this, but I... I just want to have a look at that channel. That's awful, isn't it? Oh, that really is awful. What's going on there? And you, you get sucked into these things. Many experiences of lockdown as a result of COVID-19 will have presented many opportunities for this kind of temptation because of inactivity. The damage to people's minds and lives because of the occasion of lockdown may prove to be far, far more serious and lasting than the damage to people's bodies because of the virus itself. And I leave you with that thought. But I want to come to my final and most important point. Because temptation ultimately seizes human desires. And we notice, as we've read this passage, that the narrative moves very quickly. In the space of just three verses, we go from David noticing a beautiful woman from the roof of his palace, to just three verses later, this same woman informing David that she is carrying his child. And what does the very pace and speed of these verses convey to us? Well, it conveys a sense that David is driven forward relentlessly to do what he does. He sees this beautiful woman. He longs for her. He finds out who she is. He takes her. He uses her. And she goes home, and the next thing is that she's pregnant. And it's as quick as that, as far as the narrative is concerned. This is no love story. This is no romantic narrative. This is not Isaac and Rebecca. This is not Jacob and Rachel. This is not Ruth and Boaz. There's no true love here. There's no tenderness here. There's no affection. There's no conversation. There's no wooing. There's no love song. There's no outburst of marital faithfulness. 
or loyalty. There's the very absence of these things. There's the very opposite of all these things. David is driven and compelled on his disastrous path, not by love, but by lust, by uncontrolled passion. He sees this woman, Bathsheba, and he must have her, and have her now. And I think we can link all of this back to the very occasion itself where David is that late balmy afternoon in Jerusalem in the springtime, strolling there on the roof of his palace. He's king. And he looks down at everything beneath him. And he has a sense of his own power and his own might and his own right to have just what he wants to have. And nothing must be allowed to stop him. After all, he's king of this whole realm, is he not? Do you perhaps, along with me, see a faint comparison here with another king that we've had cause to mention before? King Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace and his pride saying, this after all is great Babylon which I've built and this is mine and I'm ruler and I'm a great king. And he was struck with insanity. And here David himself is seized with a kind of insanity sense of this hubris, this sense of conceit and I'm king of the castle, I'll have what I want to have. David, this mighty king, a man of war, a man of blood, a man whose body had probably experienced more and greater surges of adrenaline than most men alive, a man who's used to conquering, a man who wins on the battlefield. He should be discharging his adrenaline on the battlefield right now, but he's still back in Jerusalem, not knowing what to do. And he is unable to resist the urge to make a conquest of a very different kind. Now let me stop and ask you a question. It's an obvious answer to this question, but it's an intriguing question and an interesting answer. Would you describe David's actions as wise? Well, no, of course you wouldn't, would you? Anything but wise. We'll come back to that in a moment. But let me ask you another question. Before this incident that begins to be recorded in chapter 11, would you have called David a wise man? And I think the answer is you would have done. By this stage in his life, David had demonstrated great wisdom, great diligence, great personal and practical discipline. Supposing just a few months earlier, somebody had said to David, do you know, uh, your majesty, King David, that um, one day a king of Israel is going to be standing on the roof of your palace and he's going to be seized by temptation and be led on a trail of destruction which would include lust, adultery, lying, and murder, what would David have said? He would have said, what a foolish, unwise, and wicked king that must be. What kind of king would do that? And this is the point. This is the very point I want to make. 
And it goes back to my first point. Temptation to sin can overpower somebody who is and has been for many years a model of wisdom, blameless, upright, and self-controlled. And you see, friends, this is the particular character of lust. Lust of more than one kind, I hasten to add. What is lust? Lust is like a powerful surge or the pulse of an electric current which bypasses the rational faculties of a human being. Lust short-circuits and burns out the mind and the reason, the rationality of any individual. Lust says to reason, lust shouts at wisdom, lust elbows discipline out of the way and it says, get out of my way, I don't care, I must have what I want, don't try and stop me, I will have this for me and I'll have it now. That's lust. Love is patient. Love is kind. But lust is entirely self-serving and impatient and brutal in its desire to have what it demands. And let me say this, that although in David's case we are obviously thinking here about sexual lust, there are other kinds of lust. What is lust? It is an out-of-control desire which elbows every reasonable objection out of the way. Lust seizes a normal, healthy, God-given human appetite or desire and it turbocharges that desire to such an extent that it blows the whole engine to pieces and in doing so creates a huge amount of collateral damage, damage that goes beyond itself to many who are around that person. There is the lust of uncontrolled anger. There is the lust of uncontrolled greed for money, for food, for drink, for anything else. There's the lust of uncontrolled ambition. There's the lust of uncontrolled power, the desire to dominate. There's the lust of uncontrolled malice, the desire to harm and ultimately to kill. And as James says, sin, when it is full grown, gives rise to death. And that's where it's going to wind up here with David. And we see, don't we, all of these awful, horrible, foul lusts surging through David as we read this chapter. And then let me say this. Don't we all know that all of these same lusts are found in our own hearts? They may not have seized you or me with quite the same intensity with which they seized David, although maybe they have. 
but we know that the potential for them to do so is right there with us. It's deep down inside us. We know that there but for the restraining grace of God we might all go. And with this I draw towards a close. Notice this. Do you see the irony of verse 4? Look at verse 4 with me. A little detail about what Bathsheba was doing at the time David took her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Whose is the uncleanness in this passage? Is it hers or is it David's? The real, foul, horrible, active, toxic uncleanness is not the ceremonial uncleanness that Bathsheba was washing herself from following, no doubt, her her menstrual cycle. But it was the uncleanness in David's heart. That's the uncleanness that we should be seeing in this passage. And as we see it, we don't just say, well, look at David's uncleanness. What a terrible man David was. No. We're already anticipating Psalm 51, where David has at last come to his senses, though it takes him an awfully long time to do so, doesn't it? And there he prays in verse 2 of Psalm 51, a prayer that should be on our lips every day if we know our hearts. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Pharisees loved to keep the cup and the dish and the outside of their buildings and even their tombs to be as bright and clean as possible. They loved to present a clean exterior to the watching world. And along comes our Lord Jesus Christ and he says to them, There is nothing from the outside that can come and defile a man. No, it's what's on the inside that comes out of a man's heart which defiles somebody. And that is biblical Christianity, biblical spirituality. That is biblical truth. That our uncleanness is of the heart. We need to be washed on the inside. Our Lord Jesus tells us these things. He says, he says, if you, as a man, you look on a woman to lust after her, and you don't actually do anything, but you are imagining and longing and lusting, you have committed adultery in the heart. Or if you, if you hate somebody, if you hate their guts, if you wish that they just weren't around, if you want to destroy them, if you are maligning them, then you are guilty of murder in your heart. The inside is unclean. And David was about to discover all of these things. We need to learn these things ourselves. How foul and polluted we are on the inside. And because of what we are on the inside, we do certain things on the outside.
But friends, we were born that way, weren't we? We've inherited Adam's sin. We don't begin with a clean page, with a clean slate, and then start to learn to do wrong things. We can then wipe out as with a a blackboard rubber or anything like that. No, we are foul and polluted from the moment we are conceived, David says. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wash me. Purge me. Cleanse me. Give me, Lord, a deep clean inside. Only you can. I can't do anything. I'm foul, I'm polluted, I'm guilty, I'm sinful. What can be done for me? Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse me from sin. Nothing else can. Oh, that we would all sense the power of the blood of Jesus. This is why I say we need to be looking at these themes together. The world's changed so much. The news changes so much. Everything's so different and we are drawn to this or that story about what's going on around us and we can lose sight of the the heart of the gospel and the heart of all our needs, which is the need of our hearts, the problem of our hearts, the sin of our hearts, the uncleanness of our hearts. And only the blood of Jesus Christ who died, who, as it were, emptied his own heart's blood out for us, can clean us from sin. Let's all pray together.